Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Hello, and welcome to another Club Core podcast. My name is Hannah Hinkin, a senior chemistry major here at UNCA, and I'll be your host of this episode along with my guest, Katie Hinkin. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm super excited to have you on today's episode. Thanks. I'm excited to be here to discuss today's topic. I don't know a lot about methamphetamine use and drug addiction, and I'm eager to learn more. I'm glad you're excited. I think today's discussion will shed some light on how meth use affects our fellow Americans, as well as some possible solutions to help them combat relapse. Now, many of us have at least heard of methamphetamine as a drug of abuse before. However, I assume that most people's familiarity with the drug comes mostly from pop culture references, movies and TV, and not necessarily from real life experiences. You know, I find it interesting that as a culture, we are so inundated with drug-related content in movies, TV, and even memes. I agree. It's bizarre how the majority of our entertainment focuses on such subjects like drug use or murder, yet we do so little to combat these issues. Exactly! Almost every crime-fighting show will have several episodes framed around drugs, and our entertainment is full of protagonists and characters struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction. Often these characters are either romanticized or demonized, but most of the time they are not humanized, allowing us to really understand the realities of drug abuse. It can leave us under the illusion that we understand drug abuse when in fact we have no idea what the reality of drug abuse looks or feels like. There are almost 20 million individuals that struggle with substance abuse in the U.S., many of which suffer from mental illness and battle additional addictions. It's just heartbreaking that there are so many people out there struggling, many of which don't have the help they need. I've heard that only a small percentage of individuals will ever receive treatment. You're right. The Surgeon General stated that as of 2016, only 10% of individuals struggling with drug abuse will receive treatment. Additionally, we need to remember that substance abuse is an ongoing, lifelong struggle for many, and that receiving treatment doesn't mean that there won't be cycles of relapse. I heard that people who work in the rehabilitation field consider meth to be the hardest addiction to combat, with the rehabilitation time taking many months, even several years, which just must be so daunting for someone struggling with drug abuse. You know, I appreciate you bringing up how massive a battle it is to deal with drug addiction and abuse. Society may label these individuals as, quote, addicts, but there is so much more to the story. I agree. I feel like it is so easy to think of, quote, addicts as this group of people defined by their drug use, while in fact they are a collection of individuals with unique personalities, traits, and struggles, and that just gets overlooked when they are labeled as an addict. Exactly. Which is one of the reasons why labeling individuals as addicts is so harmful. Additionally, I think that there is a general lack of education on what it is to struggle with drug abuse on both a biological and psychological level, which is why we'll be focusing both on the biochemistry and social implications of methamphetamine use. I hope that this conversation sparks further conversations with our viewers about the 20 million citizens in our country struggling with meth dependency, and I hope it causes all of us to ask what we can do as a nation to support them. I think this is such an important conversation to have. As we said, drug abuse can be overlooked. It can be romanticized. And there's just so many people out there who need help, and we need to talk about how we can help them. I agree. And I think in order to understand how we can help them, we need to educate ourselves on the facts about meth. So to begin with, methamphetamine is part of a class of drugs called amphetamine-type stimulants, and it's the second most abused drug class in the world. An example of a legal amphetamine would be Ritalin, which is used to treat ADHD. I didn't know that Ritalin was considered amphetamine. 
Amazing how drugs that have drastically different effects can be classified under the same title. Actually, ritalin and meth are very closely related and do provide similar effects. Both increase alertness and decrease appetite. But meth gives that sense of euphoria, which is that, quote, high people talk about. This high is one of the facts that makes the drug so addictive. Gotcha. So where did meth first come from, then? Was it derived from Italy? Not exactly. Amphetamines as a class were originally developed in World War II to keep soldiers alert and reduce their appetite during their long shifts with little food. Later in the 1950s and 60s, it was prescribed for obesity and depression. Both seem like very different applications, but seem harmless enough. How did this spiral into the meth abuse problem we have today? Well, in 1970, the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act was passed, which made amphetamines a more controlled substance due to their potentially addictive properties. This created a black market demand that was met by synthesizing meth using phenylacetone and methylamine, resulting in what is referred today as meth. As phenylacetone was increasingly used for mass production, it eventually became a scheduled substance and access was limited. So, I'm assuming a scheduled substance is a restricted substance? Exactly. There are five categories to be exact, Schedule 1 through 5. Schedule 1 drugs are those that are deemed extremely dangerous, with a high risk of abuse and no medical payoff. A Schedule 5 drug, on the other hand, would be medicinally relevant and pose almost zero risk of abuse. Meth is a Schedule 2 drug. That's very interesting. I can't imagine anything worse than meth. You'd actually be surprised. Well, heroin, which is granted a very dangerous drug, is a Schedule 1 drug. Marijuana is also a Schedule 1 drug. I think of marijuana as a significantly less dangerous drug than meth. Yeah, I'm honestly not 100% sure, but I think it does point to the fact that policies and laws passed around illicit drug use are flawed. For instance, when phenylacetone became a Schedule II substance, black market drug producers were resourceful, and they began smuggling ephedrine and pseudoephedrine, common decongestants, for Mexico. The market for meth exploded, with the annual rate of new users doubling over the 1990s. In 2005, legislation was passed called the Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act. Abuse did decrease for a short period, however, that did not last long. Currently, the number of users is increasing. Additionally, the method for cooking meth has been perfected, resulting in lower manufacturing costs and substantially higher purities, which creates a much more addictive substance. This also comes at a lower cost for the user, increasing use and access. Wow, I had no idea that the market and process were only becoming more and more efficient and cost-effective. That's concerning. Indeed. Especially when you consider that the more regulation is enforced, the higher that black market demand goes, creating a system where the reward of drug manufacturing really does outweigh the risk. It's actually a huge reason why the war on drugs and the criminalization of drug users is controversial. What are your thoughts on that topic? I think that the production of meth should definitely be illegal. It causes nothing but harm. There are no real positives here. Additionally, I think that keeping meth use as illegal does discourage use. However, for those who are in a desperate enough place that they turn to drug use for whatever reason, they're likely not considering the legality of their actions, and I'm concerned that the illegal status of consuming meth may keep individuals from coming forward for treatment, and so, in that sense, I think the current laws might be causing more harm than good. You know, I totally agree with you that we should remove barriers that might cause those struggling to avoid seeking treatment. And that's a huge concern if you think about those affected most by methamphetamine abuse. You're looking at people in low socioeconomic circumstances who often don't have very good access to health care and are not going to have a strong relationship with a primary care physician. And even if you did have a great relationship with your primary care doctor, I cannot really imagine walking into your doctor's office and saying, hey, I've been using meth, what do I do about that? It's just not the most logical thing to assume someone's going to do when they're in a compromising position that could wind them up in jail. Yeah, 
My natural assumption is that coming forward and admitting that you're struggling with drug abuse results in you going to prison and being removed from your life, your family, any positive relationship you may have, which is a huge problem when the solid relationships in your life are one of your only hopes of beating addiction. I just don't feel like the current answer to this problem is sufficient. Exactly. It's definitely something we need to think about more as a nation. Something that's really important for us to understand when we are thinking about new solutions to this problem is the biological implications of meth use. While cardiovascular symptoms like increased blood pressure and heart rate are due to norepinephrine being released from the sympathetic nervous system, the interactions in the brain are a bit more complicated. What is the difference between epinephrine and norepinephrine? Well, both are small molecules that act as hormones within the body, but they also act as neurotransmitters in the brain and are associated with the fight-or-flight response. They act very similarly, but norepinephrine is much more active at constricting blood vessels. When it comes to addiction and drugs of abuse, it's safe to assume that there is some level of interaction with the brain. That's where the behavioral changes come that lead to addiction. The brain is made up of neurons, and these specialized cells communicate with one another through the release of neurotransmitters, which are small molecules that trigger specialized responses in neighboring cells. Don't they send electrical signals to each other through the synaptic space between the neurons? Yeah. So essentially, within the neuron, there is an electrical signal based on a chemical electrical gradient of ions. And then that triggers neurotransmitter release, which is a chemical signal that does go across the synapse to the next neuron, which will then trigger an electrical current response there. Okay. Are there several kinds of neurotransmitters, or are they all the same? There are several kinds of neurotransmitters, and often drugs will mimic one of these transmitters. This allows it to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is a specialized barrier that keeps toxins out of the brain. It also allows a drug to interact with the neuron connections at the synapse. It might be helpful to think of individual neurons as dealing in a certain currency, with each neurotransmitter being a separate currency. So neurons will conduct business in more than one currency at a time, however the majority will favor one currency over another. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter responsible for reward responses. When you win the lottery or eat a delicious ice cream, you are triggering the neurons that deal in the currency of dopamine. These are the neurons affected by meth, indicating that meth interacts with reward neural networks. Wow, that is fascinating and frightening. No wonder people turn to it as an escape. It surely must feel like a one-way ticket to relief and happiness if it's altering reward neural networks. Exactly. And furthermore, meth affects the dopaminergic neurons responsible for our ability to engage in introspective thought, achieve our goals, and even prioritize incoming information. So when these neural networks are interfered with, the brain of the substance abuser will begin relying more on neural networks centered around drug-seeking or reward, and it becomes more difficult for an individual to use their executive functions to avoid relapse. Wow. So as they continue to take the drug, it gets increasingly more difficult on the biological level to quit. No wonder it's impossible to get off. You've hit the nail on the head. This propensity to relapse is actually what researchers at Peter Kalivas' lab have been studying. Their studies were conducted using cocaine, but they've shown that in rats addicted to cocaine, simple environmental cues like a sound or flashing light that is associated with the, quote, hit of cocaine are powerful enough to induce drug-seeking even after the rats are no longer getting cocaine. Similar results have been found when studying meth. Yeah, I've heard of a somewhat similar study where they offer a rat food or cocaine, and the rat will actually choose the cocaine, resulting in them starving to death. Which is honestly an amazing picture of how tough it is to be someone who's been hooked on one of these drugs. It also indicates that relapse is due to long-term structural changes to the brain, not a failure of character. It's easy to blame someone abusing meth for a relapse, however, we often do not take into account the physiological changes that have occurred in their brains, making them much more susceptible to relapse compared to an individual who has not previously been addicted. Understanding this physiological dependency is so important, especially with how addiction is portrayed in the media. 
It's easy to think they could get off of it if they wanted to, or that they could simply choose to quit, but they really can't. They're dependent upon these drugs on a chemical level, which is why they need help to get clean. It's an excellent word use there. It is called drug dependency for a reason. That reason is primarily molecularly based. On the molecular level, meth interferes with neurons taking up dopamine once that dopamine has been released into the synaptic space. The meth interferes with these neurons by reducing the number of transporters at the neural membrane available to take up the dopamine. Meth also directly competes with dopamine for uptake. You can think of this as if you were in a crowded concert hall. Everyone has to exit out of these doors. Meth not only reduces the number of doors for you to go out of, but also competes to exit out of that reduced number of doors. This results in a buildup of people, or dopamine in this case, being stuck in that concert hall or synaptic space for a longer period of time. Interesting. What kind of negative effects does it have on our bodies or brains when excess dopamine gets stuck in a neural space like that? Well, as referenced earlier, it affects your ability to seek reward as well as inhibits executive function because now your neurons aren't firing when they're supposed to be fired. Meth increases various protein levels required for maintaining proper neuron functioning and proper polarization for neural firing. This results in neurons overfiring, causing extracellular cytotoxicity, which is essentially where there are too many neurotransmitters in the synaptic space, and the excess of neurotransmitters is causing off-target effects. Additionally, meth increases the activity of the dopamine neurons, so basically, sticking with our concert hall analogy, meth causes the influx of more and more concert goers. At the same time, admission times increase while the people from the previous viewing have more and more trouble exiting the hall. So, not only is it causing a dopamine to be stuck out in the synaptic space, it's also creating more dopamine. Kind of. It's essentially causing an increased release of dopamine from the neurons while also reducing how much dopamine can be cleared from the synapse. This results in a net increase of dopamine. Gotcha. So, what did you mean exactly when you mentioned polarization of neural fire? So, neurons talk to each other using action potentials, which are electrical signals sent through an individual cell that trigger the release of neurotransmitters from the cell sending the information, or the presynaptic cell. The neurotransmitter then crosses the synapse to the cell receiving information, which is the postsynaptic cell, and binds to the receptors on that cell surface. This causes channels to open up on the postsynaptic cell, which allows charged atoms or ions to cross that membrane. That causes a shift in electrical current or polarity. It's this shift in polarity that is required for the transmission of action potentials. And when a neuron cannot maintain proper polarization or mediate that proper change in polarization in response to an action potential, the cell cannot communicate properly within the neural network. Okay, I feel like I have a much better understanding of how meth interacts in the cellular level, but I'm interested in understanding how meth abuse can be successfully treated based off of this knowledge. I'm glad you're learning so much. And as far as treatment goes, meth addiction is currently treated via traditional rehabilitation methods revolving around detox and supported by cognitive behavioral therapy. However, there is now a drug that is in clinical trials for use in those recovering from meth addiction. Now, Trexin interacts with the brain's receptors and has been used successfully for both alcohol and opioid abuse. Wow, both alcohol and opioid abuse. That's interesting. I would not assume that they shared enough in common to be treated by the same drug. Well, naltrexin directly interacts with the brain's reward centers, blocking it from being triggered. By blocking that reward system in the brain, drug-seeking behavior, whether that be for meth, alcohol, or opiates, is not chemically rewarded in the brain. And it has been shown that naltrexin breaks the connection between the executive control centers of the brain and the portions of the brain that rely on default modes. With drug addiction, the brain is relying on that default mode of doing things, and this default mode overrides the executive function. Now, Trexin alters these interactions, allowing the executive function centers of the brain to take charge. 
Additionally, naltrexone has been shown in rat studies to reduce the likelihood of relapse when exposed to environmental cues. It's so wonderful that treatments are being developed that can offer more concrete help to those who are struggling with addiction. Psychotherapy is a great tool, but without rewriting those neural pathways which are so altered by meth and addiction in general, I feel like recovery and avoidance of relapse is nearly impossible. It sounds like naltrexone really does aid in that rewiring, which I think is really necessary. That's an excellent point. It's so important for us to look at addiction and drug abuse as something that is physiological, and combining traditional cognitive behavioral therapy and naltrexone will hopefully increase the likelihood of someone with a substance abuse disorder successfully living fulfilling lives post-drug abuse, and will hopefully have fewer relapses. Naltrexone should allow some biochemical relief for the patient, while the cognitive behavioral therapy can help them navigate their new world more effectively, putting coping mechanisms in place. Yeah, exactly. The combination of these two treatments will be so valuable in the battle against drug abuse. However, I feel like the problem of drug abuse is multidimensional, and not a question of biology alone. You had mentioned earlier that meth abusers are more likely to have multiple addictions as well as suffer mental illness. Do you know why that's the case for meth in particular? I can't say for certain, but it seems to be tied to low socioeconomic standing, which is associated with lack of access to both healthcare and education. A lack of education often leaves individuals with less opportunities. A lack of health care can result in individuals attempting to self-medicate their own problems with drugs and alcohol. If we look at the consequences of meth use in the population of mothers and their children, we see that mothers who abuse meth come with additional risk factors. They're statistically more likely to have psychiatric disorders, be victims of domestic abuse, suffer from homelessness, have suffered childhood trauma, and have limited support in general. You asked why those struggling with substance abuse to meth are more likely to have more addictions or mental health issues? I think if you look at these stats about risk factors, you'll see that these people are coming from rather traumatic backgrounds, which can increase the likelihood of turning to drugs. When we look at mothers and their children, we see that a child born to a meth addict is born to a tumultuous, unstable home life. By the age of 36 months, 42% of children will be removed from their mothers and placed in alternative housing. And those who stay with their mothers are more likely to have increased stress and increased incidence of behavioral issues like anxiety, depression, and ADHD, as well as other issues. Wow, it's interesting that we see a higher level of ADHD development in those kinds of circumstances. I thought of ADHD as more of a disorder one was born with. Well, it's quite possible that these children are being born with a predisposition for these problems and not necessarily developing them post-birth. It's possible that the use of meth during pregnancy could lead to higher rates of ADHD, as meth can cross the placental barrier and influence development of the fetus. However, we also need to consider that children tend to do better with their biological parents compared to a foster or adoptive home. Children moved from their parents suffer long-term side effects. That's why when it comes to treating the meth epidemic in our country, we cannot just throw every individual with substance abuse into jail, ripping their children away from them. I agree, but meth use is dangerous, and we can't turn a blind eye either. You're right. We must create a multifaceted system that supports these individuals. With an increasing understanding of the biological mechanisms behind meth abuse, as well as the discovery of drugs like naltrexone, I think there's hope that addiction will soon be seen as something akin to any other mental illness, a treatable disease and not a character flaw. Ideally, treatment needs to be more widely available, and the stigma of drug abuse needs to be reduced. When we live in a culture that looks down its nose at those suffering with addiction, and when we live in a country where the healthcare system is as convoluted as ours, it's no wonder that those struggling with drug abuse are unable to get the help they need. I personally cannot imagine trying to get help for an addiction, especially when rehab centers are portrayed in the media as either maniacal or for the rich elite. What of the young mother who's struggling with her mental health and her multiple addictions? What of her and her children? What are we doing to help them?
Exactly. The issue is vast and far from resolved. With the development of treatment drugs, we're on our way. But like you said, we need to lower the stigma surrounding drug abuse. If struggling individuals feel as if they'll be scorned or judged, of course they will not come forward and ask for help. Asking for help is hard enough for any of us as it is, never mind when it feels guaranteed to earn judgment and potential punishment. I appreciate this discussion and all that I've learned from it. Thanks for having me on here today. Thank you. I really enjoyed having your perspective on this issue. I also want to thank the listener for tuning in to another episode of Club Core. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and have learned from our discussion. And if you're interested in learning more, please check out the additional resources below. Club Corps is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcorps.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time. <laughs>